0: You are listening to The
1: Cycling Podcast. Hello and joining you on November the 8th, otherwise known as International Cappuccino Day, the contentious coffee-based beverage, which, as we learned from our friend Alberto Grandi of the University of Parma earlier this year, may owe its popularity to Clueless German tourists on the Adriatic Riviera in the 1950s and 1960s, even if its name is reported to derive from Marco Daviano, a Capuchin monk who demanded a dollop of steamed milk to take the edge off his extra shot, Venti Americano, in a Viennese coffee house in September 1683. That may be true, that story. Um, I may have added a little flourish there um, f- for my own entertainment. My name is Daniel Freiber. I am the host of this episode of the Cycling Podcast, in which we will, as ever, endeavour to blow the froth off the big talking points in the world of pro cycling. And also today, in light of last week's discussion of a new plan to shake up pro cycling, explain why the coffee resembling previous attempts to do the same is has been not a cappuccino but an affogato that is the sunken one a sunken one my fellow barista today is a man who has been personally involved in one of those efforts to reheat the cold brew that is the pro cycling business model it is il barone the great dane brian nygaard how are you brian we haven't had you on for a while we've missed you
2: well seeing you uh, and I just I'll just have to explain to my li- uh, our listeners what you're wearing right now and oh, it's uh, it might be the off season for the riders but you look like some like a, <laughs> a like a crazy french fan that's been merged with uh, a mountaineering person who got lost in the Tibetan, you know, you, uh, altitude.
1: In the, in the, well, that's that's actually not too far from the truth, Brian. Because um, this was supposed to be a holiday week for me, um, and I am I'm in a mountain hideaway in the Dolomites. I can tell that um, you're in, not my, in the Beverly much- Hills hotel, Daniel. No, very much in my element up here in the Val d'Ultima, which is a very remote um, valley uh, in... I'm actually not in the Dolomites. I'm in Sutiro, Alto Adige, um, the German-speaking part of Italy. It's not a very well-known valley. This is the Val d'Ultima (Ultental) in German. It's sort of the backside of the Stelvio. Um, you get the end of the valley, you go into the Stelvio National Park, and the Giro d'Italia almost never visits the. All Val of this d'ultima. sounds
2: like this must be a spiritual home. It really ticks all the Daniel Freebie boxes. It very
1: much is. It very much is. And I'm drinking a glass of Forst, which is the local beer, an excellent Tyrolese beer which everyone drinks up here brewed in merano yesterday i had lunch in the force brewery in merano so yeah having a splendid time brian and well we thought the listeners as i said um, we we're supposed to be on holiday this week but we thought the listeners deserved woe podcast every week hence here we you are brian um what have you been up to the last couple of weeks
2: um well, you know, after this, the, the cycling season's end, ended, because I don't think you and I... I mean, we, we've caught up occasionally, but that's just sending trashy memes uh, <laughs> yes, to each other, are. which is nothing to do with, <laughs> with the cycling podcast. Yeah, so I uh, I went to California and made uh, wine um, for a month's time, um, produced uh, a little bit more than I expected, which is always great. Um, and I just got back from Copenhagen, Denmark, for um, I'm doing a, a book with a Danish chef, and, and actually it's actually four books, but it's a big one and three small ones. And I just got back from the first session of that, and then actually I don't know if I'm supposed to t- say this, but I am, anyways. And tomorrow I'm off to Amsterdam to participate in a um, Amazon Prime uh, second season of a Dutch show about Jumbo Visma.
1: Ah, and so you've obviously not signed a non-disclosure agreement um, and you, su- you suggest
2: n- those usually end up in my spam mail <laughs> yeah yes
1: um, well Brian that all sounds very interesting The cookbooks um, what is it sort of you know 50 best lasagna re- recipes that kind of thing pretty much yeah and um, brian um news roundup time on as i said international cappuccino day um cappuccino day in itself is a bit of a misnomer because it should it should only really be cappuccino morning shouldn't it Cappuccino really, D- International cappuccino day should end at about 11 o'clock in the morning <laughs> it can never be anyway full it day. is no anyway it is uh, international cappuccino day and this is this is the week that was in professional cycling uh, there was worrying news for cycling in Britain this week, Brian, with reports that the National Federation of British Cycling has prematurely ended the agreement whereby the Sweet Spot Group organises and promotes the National Tour, a.k.a. the Tour of Britain. Sweet Spot has run the race since 2004 and was contracted to do so at least until 2029. The dispute will was- Chisholm has reportedly come about because Sweet Spot owe British Cycling money. Reports say around £700,000. Lawyers are currently dealing with the dispute, but Sweet Spot have also said they're confident that they may yet organise the Tour of Britain in 2024 and also the Women's Tour, another one of their races. This also comes against the backdrop of tough squeeze times for pro cycling in the UK with the Tour of Britain. Having already gone ahead without a title sponsor this year, In addition, last week, Cycling Weekly reported that British Cycling's latest set of accounts showed a £1.3 million annual loss. Brian, as an outsider, is all of this quite baffling to you, given the... You know the giddy days, the glory days, the golden era that we all lived through and all experienced. You know, you were in that era briefly. Um, I was on that payroll, Team actually. Sky. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you were on that Team Sky. You were on the gravy train, Brian. Yeah. Um Yeah. What do you What do you make of it all? I mean, there is a lot of
2: um, moving parts in it, and and I don't know the elements of whether someone has done a poor job at spending the money and or making investments, but uh, you know, as we see. As we'll talk about later on in this podcast, it's there's also some external factors right now in the global economy and in in the economy of sports that, that are certainly not beneficial to to cycling. Um, my feeling has always been that the Tour Britain has been very sort of well followed by fans uh, and and attracted quite quite good uh, international peloton, but it's it's never really. To me, come across as a race that had a lot of attention from the outside in. And I'm not sure if that's affected their ability to get uh, funding and get sponsorship
1: yeah I mean we may Brian. We will endeavor in the next sort of few weeks at least um to have Mick Bennett, good friend of the podcast, um, one of the chiefs of the tour of Britain, will have him on to sort of explain the or or give a sweet spot side of the story, maybe if he's willing to do so um but as you say, the sort of I get the impression sometimes um, just more widely outside of Britain there's this sports sponsorship fatigue. Um, regardless of what other squeezes, what other um, economical issues, financial issues that businesses are facing, it almost feels as though the kind of golden age of sponsorship and this idea that sponsorship was kind of a silver bullet for a company's fortunes um, they may be gone Um, and as you said we will talk a lot about that later um, on uh,
2: not just UK based businesses but a lot of cycling businesses in general are not doing that well you know it, it, i wouldn't say we've been in a bubble but you see a lot of uh, businesses that produce parts for bikes bikes you know selling uh, bike selling all kinds of things bike related are not doing as great as they did just a couple of years ago and and now that we're probably past the supply chain issues that covid uh, put upon the industry it, it's as if the, um, now that it's sort of consolidating again to like a normal way of running their businesses as if the business is not really back to normal at all Uh, so that's obviously worrying but it's 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 probably also a little bit more realistic that that the craze about bikes and buying bikes and buying expensive bikes has died down a little bit I think
1: yeah definitely and we're definitely not beyond the sort of overstocking over growing over expanding age um, which sort of came about as a result of COVID and which saw the bike industry experience massive boom if it was pretty short lived um, Brian as I said more about the business of professional cycling later in the episode a couple of bits of transfer and contract news the Aussie national road race champion Luke Plapp has left Ineos Grenadiers a year before his contract with them was due to expire he's gone home as it were to Jaco Alula pending a four year deal um luke plapp was a rider who when he turned professional a couple of years ago was the subject of a lot of hype um he lived up to it to a certain extent at certainly has done at certain times in certain races for for example i mentioned there the aussie national road race championship but this year he certainly really struggled but four-year deal that's a measure of how much jaco lula believe in him great character very entertaining character Certainly a very um, interesting, engaging interviewee. Um, Brian, I don't think it's rude to say that the 37-year-old Ben Hermans is at the other end of his career arc. And Hermans is one of two riders. Kofidis have signed this week to beef up their climbing division. Hermans signing from Israel Premier Tech. And with him... Wait for it. King Kenny Elisande arriving from Little Trek. I was delighted to hear that King Kenny is continuing his career as a professional cyclist, Brian, because uh, I've alluded to this over the last few weeks. But Kenny and I had a few conversations at the Vuelta a España, and much in the same way that our, our very good friend, the Motown maestro Larry Warbass, was a sort of um, a beaten down figure at the end of the Vuelta a España. Um, Kenny was um, sort of similarly downbeat um, because he well, had a tough race. The race was incredibly fast. And he and I had a f- m- well numerous conversations about how the life of a pro cyclist is getting harder and harder. And there are more and more sacrifices involved. And Kenny is someone who has a broad range of interests and he likes to pursue them. Nothing, you know, there're no great vices there, but, you know, he likes to go to the cinema. He likes to ha- maybe have one glass of wine um, of a November evening around a log fire. And um, there is a, a sort of sense among those older riders that, well, A, the youngsters don't do that. And B, they, as older riders, can't afford to do that stuff anymore. Um, not financially, to go to the, the cinema? They, well, go to the cinema, have a glass of, you know, Riocha of a Thursday night oh I don't know Brian then, then, um, I, then we definitely should then we should all be concerned got, I thought I made way less money than problems. any of those guys we've got big problems um, last bit of contract news Brian Astana have confirmed that Mark Renshaw will remain with the team in 2024 as a DS. Renshaw again linking up with Mark Cavendish with whom he of course enjoyed huge success when he, that is Renshaw, was a rider. Brian Renshaw got rave reviews at the Tour de France this year from pretty much everyone at Astana. I think he brought a level of detail to proceedings that had been lacking at that team, was lacking for much of the year. They didn't have a particularly successful year Um, and Renshaw I think will be, well, he'll be an asset Definitely. Brian, doping news. Um, We recorded last week, just a little bit late, to include reports that Jumbo Vismas 22-year-old German rider, Michael Hesman, had his anti-doping violation. um, He tested positive in June. Upheld after the analysis of his B-sample by the German National Anti-Doping Agency, Hesman's urine contained traces of a banned diuretic can be used as a masking agent. He now faces a four-year ban or two years if he can prove that substance enters his body due to contamination. Yimbo know, Visma boss Richard Plugger has previously or had previously said that his team must look themselves in the mirror to assess, well, what's gone wrong here? Which, by which I don't think he's suggesting that, well, I know he's not suggesting that the team had any role in Hessman taking uh, a banned substance. But um, there was a lot of talk about this this kind of oversight of riders by teams um, well in the era we referred to a minute ago Brian when you were at Sky for example um, when a lot of riders were still testing positive we almost got tired of the press releases in which a team would say you know my, our team has nothing to do with or um, we take no responsibility for rider X testing positive but um yeah, this uh, doping news in general. We've not had a lot of it over the last couple of years. No, we certainly haven't. And uh, isn't that jolly? You know, in the sense
2: that <laughs> it's even to the point now without um, knowing all of the details, I feel like I'm writing a press release now, but without knowing all the details in, in the current case with uh, Hessman, that, that not automatically, but there's there's a bigger part of me now that thinks that, that uh, what went wrong in the sense that what kind of mistake did he make to have that uh, substance in his sample, you know, more than, you know, masking agents, uh, sounds peculiarly old school, you know, because the, whatever you're masking will, will show up anyways in a, you know, in a, in an anti-doping test, most likely anyways, uh, because they're so finely, you know, when you look at the amount, the the amount, the trace amount that, that, needs to be there for it to be positive it's so minuscule that that you kind of feel like it's 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 almost a surprise that someone would uh, get caught with something like that but yeah, uh, I, 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 as a reflection of how things have changed you know i'm not in the i'm not shrugging my shoulders at at someone put jeopardizing the team and ending his career but i i just think the context now is a little bit different when it happens
1: mm, i think we haven't heard too much from Hessman, if anything, actually. Um, I suspect that he will try to argue that it is contamination. And, well, the, the issue there. Um, is that it becomes very expensive for these riders to mount legal cases uh, particularly if they're left high and dry by their team in this case Yuma Visma had backed Hessman up until now whether they will continue to back him whether they will do so publicly um, we're, not, we're not sure but for a rider a 22 year old rider on his own to go out and um, recruit lawyers who will work over a period of weeks and months to prove that This was an unwitting mistake. Um, It's it's very, very expensive and pretty difficult. Brian, finally, my favourite bit of the pod, Cyclocross News. We've had European Cyclocross Championships in Pontchateau in France this week with Femke van Empel taking an emphatic win in the women's race and Michael van Hurenhout also defending his title in the men's race. In that one, Great Britain's Cameron Mason was a very impressive second At the weekend, the World Cup resumes with the races in Dendermonde. I know enough about cyclocross and Belgium to tell you that that is in Belgium. Chute, chute à l'arrière du peloton. Cycling podcast team car at the back of the pack, please.
0: That's Seb Piquet, the voice of Radio Tour, to remind us to tell you that this episode is sponsored by LinkedIn Jobs. Now, if you run a small business and you're looking to hire somebody for your company, it can feel pretty high stakes because you don't have the luxury of making the wrong decision. Hiring somebody for any company, small, medium or large, is a big deal. But when you run a small business, you want to be 100% certain that you have access to the best qualified candidates available. And that is really where LinkedIn Jobs comes into its own because LinkedIn can help you find the right people for your team quickly and for free. In fact, four out of five jobs advertised on LinkedIn attract a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And that is because LinkedIn has a huge network of professional people. More than 770 million people are on LinkedIn and... The right person for your organization will undoubtedly be out there somewhere. And LinkedIn Jobs, with the ability to post a job ad for free, gives you the best chance of attracting those candidates. So it's very simple to do. You write your job description, make it very clear the role and responsibilities and the type of person that you're looking for. And then you add the job ad and the purple hashtag hiring frame to your own LinkedIn profile. And that will help to spread the word that you're on the lookout for somebody. Then there are a series of simple tools such as screening questions, which make it easy to narrow down that search and focus on the candidates with just the right skills and experience for your company. And then you can quickly prioritize who you'd like to interview and ultimately hire And that is why small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs as the number one when delivering quality candidates against some of the other competitors. If you'd like to give LinkedIn jobs a try, you can post a job ad for free at linkedin.com slash cycle. That's linkedin.com slash cycle. Post your job ad for free and then wait for the right person to apply. Well, Brian...
1: (sighs) I hinted in the intro, in the first part to today's episode, that you'd been hand-selected, you'd been hand-picked like a perfectly ripe, I don't know, Pinot Noir grape for this podcast this week, because we wanted to talk a little bit more about an issue that we we touched on with Larry, it was Larry Warbass and me last week, the Motown Maestro. We touched on this recently broken story about a group of teams, six teams Working together in something they were calling one cycling, one cycling harmony group or harmony project with a view to creating some sort of new league in professional cycling with a view, probably, we imagine they don't really need to spell this out um, to earn a bit more money and to make cycling's professional, well, professional cycling's business model a little bit more sustainable. Of course, we know it's not sustainable at all, as evidenced by the fact that the world's number one team, Jumbo Visma, recently, well, m- seemed, maybe they were not, but seemed to be in difficulty, some would even say on the precipice. Um, so, Brian, we, we briefly prefaced, I, I think, what will be a longer discussion last week, um, but... Since we do have you here, let me just ask you, Brian. When you saw these stories, heard these stories, um, as someone who has a bit of experience in these matters, as we'll go on to discuss in a minute, what did you think? Well, first of all, I'm, I'm not
2: surprised. You know, even if you take away the context of cycling being cycling and everyone re- repeatedly say that the business model is not sustainable, uh, there are the elements uh, in in this new um, story or new group that's Different in a way that it involves um, an entity that has a proven record in wanting to invest an immense amount of money in sports. If there's a connection to, let's say, Saudi Arabia, uh, we've seen that in other sports, and there's a tendency uh, for those investments to be very, very huge. You know, a lot of, a lot of dollar figures, a lot of. Amount, a massive amount of money that they they they, put, they can potentially throw at something like that. So that's that's I think that's the new element. But the that cycling teams want to try and, and create a business model that, that doesn't put the best potentially the best teams in the world, um, uh, you know, hanging by the by the fingernails at the edge of the cliff, even if they've done everything right. Uh, I think that's that's normal for for any you know, anyone, regardless of what they do, because there's a discrepancy between your sporting success and between the visibility that you create. And then uh, at the same time, not being able to secure your budget. So because of that, it's normal that anyone in that position will try and seek out other possibilities and cycling. It happens quite often. It's not, it's not, it's less than a, a little bit more than a decade ago, the last really serious effort, but now it's, it's come back in the context of how sport And massive um, Middle Eastern uh, uh, funding can actually change things quite dramatically and quite fast.
1: Brian, a point I didn't make, um, something I didn't, a challenge I didn't put to Larry last week, but um, just to play devil's advocate, and again, before we go into some of the historical context of all of this, um, when we talk about sustainability, one could argue that the agencies the individuals in this whole discussion who have ensured that professional cycling is not sustainable are the teams themselves because they have escalated salaries or well whether it's the riders and their agents have escalated salaries um but the teams have buckled and they've paid those salaries um more than anyone well they're they're one could say they are the culprits for this situation. Nowhere is it written in the UCI constitution that the best rider in the world needs to earn 6 million euros a year or 7 million euros a year. And as I say, I call it an an escalation and it has been quite a fast escalation. Um, We talked in the podcast back when it happened about, I think it was um, the the contract that Peter Sagan signed with Tinkov which took him way over 3 million, I think, towards 5 million euros. And that seemed like a bit of a watershed. That seemed like a bit of a quantum leap. And there have been a few more of them since. And when we talk about the lack of sustainability and the costs involved in running a professional cycling, effectively, we're talking about the wage bill. That's yeah, the problem.
2: But I, I think that needs to be qualified a little bit because of the current situation. Even if you go back ten years, it, it needs to be qualified a little bit. Um, if there is no, there's a, there's no salary cap, uh, which means there's no there's no finite amount uh, in professional cycling. And two elements are relevant in that. Uh, now there are four. Like it's, let's say there's a small handful of teams whose budget is a lot bigger than the rest of the you know, the group uh, which now consists or the world to consists of and they will they will they will compete for the same type of riders and they can only compete uh, via spending money uh, i would like to isolate that from how some certain bike manufacturers are willing to invest in certain riders not just because of their result but because of their personalities and, and that, I think that's a little bit two separate things. Uh, however, in the last decade, starting, I would say, probably with Trek, uh, going into being a team owner, uh, the element of the bike industry as an investor, as a, you know, a considerable amount of uh, investment in cycling coming from bike manufacturers, it also changes a little bit how the cult of personality around some riders will make them a lot more expensive. So, yeah, there will never be a finite amount of money in, in, a, in, a, in a sport where there aren't any franchises, there aren't any stadiums, and there aren't any salary caps. And lastly, but very importantly, there's not a, a redistribution of money that comes from selling TV rights. Um, so that's one of the reasons. But it's, some of it is contingent of the current financial situation, but I think all of it, is, it can be rationally calculated to predictable behavior.
1: Brian, let's press pause there and let's step into our time machines, our respective time machines. And let's journey back, Brian, to a time where you were younger, you were, you were more romantic about the world, um, you I've had never been a more budding, about them, you had no. a budding career in professional <laughs> cycling as you were still a press officer back then in around two thousand and four two thousand and five that 's the time i 'm talking about and This is a key point um, in the discussion we are currently having about business models and potential fractures between UCI ASO teams and so on and so forth. Brian, um, what happened in two thousand and four, two thousand and five? Because I think uh, you had you were you were sort of at the bleeding edge of some of this. Yeah, I mean, just to take you in, immediately into uh, how it felt.
2: You know, that that I think it was my second or third season in pro cycling, and I I came into the sport thinking that there were it was a very solid entity and. Everyone knew what everyone wanted and you know once you've done your first Tour de France and any other grand tour that's not the Tour de France, you realize very quickly that ASO is um, has a way of operating, has a way of controlling things in the sport that doesn't have any um, it doesn't have any equal in cycling it doesn't they are and I realized that quite early that they are the most powerful, uh, organization they're more powerful than the teams all put together they're more powerful than the uci and the teams put together and in, in those exact years uh, when the uci were, were quite interested in in taking charge of what they felt like they owned. and they own two things in cycling really apart from the rights to sell tv for the world championships is they own the regulation and they own the calendar and they wanted to they wanted to solidify that by creating the the pro tour which is now, you know, in other iterations, is called the World Tour, but they created the Pro Tour, and uh, it actually became such a conflict. It escalated very fast. And the evening before Paris Tour, uh, sorry, Paris in March, we didn't actually know whether we were going to race or not, because they, the ASO. You, said, were, C- you were the CSC yeah. press officer at yeah. the time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think you actually ended up yeah, winning that race, um, but we didn't know if the race was to be held. Because the ASO refused uh, to be part of the Pro Tour, and the reason why they refused that should also be seen in the context of that era was because that meant they didn't decide who was supposed, who could ride the, the Tour de France, which was really you know the the big ticket race, and they didn't um, want anyone else to decide that because they've had their struggles, and later on they would have even more struggles with teams they didn't want at the race, so they wanted full control. Of who was riding the ASO races so that's why there was a very it was a difficult birth for the pro tour and to to just to finish off it highlighted the power struggle that that could in my opinion maybe not maybe not in the same way today but could always only be won by the ASO because they own the only thing that we can really make a cycling team make money or, or have that type of exposure that would attract a big sponsor.
1: Brian, they wanted to decide who rode their races. But is it also true to say, and this is a point that a lot of people make, including last week I referred to a long conversation I'd had with someone who has been involved in attempts to, let's say, diversify uh, and strengthen, bolster the pro cycling um, financial model. Um, He said that ASO want to divide and conquer, that they want to keep the teams weak and make sure that nothing matters except the Tour. So it, would you agree with that? That it's, it was more complicated then and it would be more complicated now than just deciding that this team rides Paris-Nice, this team yeah. rides the to Tour de France and so forth?
2: Yeah, there's, there's an underlying um, agenda, uh, of course. Um, I think for several reasons, one of them being that if they felt that the teams either with the UCI or without the UCI became too coherent an entity that they would become a threat, right? That's why you want to divide and and, and conquer. And also imagine, uh, sometimes we need to look at this from a little bit further outside than, than we put maybe like to, but imagine if someone came into the board meeting at the Emory Sports um, annual big business meeting and said, hey, uh, I'm going to take 25% of your revenue and give it to someone else. I don't think you would be in that meeting very long because they own something that they sell and make money out of. And if they see an entity getting, you know, inches, even inches closer to um, diverting that decision process where they control everything, of course they react, right? Because they, they will do a power struggle say, well, do you not want to ride to France? Well, good luck with that, you know, and, and t- good luck telling that to your sponsors. So they want to make sure that they control as much as as possible and that's not just because they they you know it's not a cultural thing because they're French it's because they run a business and you can't really compete with a hundred years of of equity and think that they just give it away.
1: And this is why antitrust laws exist yeah, in every exactly. in every country, but it's very difficult to enforce. I mean, I've wondered about the EU enforcing some kind of antitrust legislation that would penalise the Tour de France, because how else do you deal with this monopoly? As we said last week, the Tour de France is the most beautiful golden goose in any sport, and if you look across the whole sort of sporting panorama, it's very difficult to identify any monopoly that rivals the one over, over which ASO presides so
2: if there aren't any franchises that the team somehow can tap into create an identity with and have a steady income the the only real fr- franchise uh, the only real franchises are, are the races right they they teams can come and go writer's career will start they'll stop they'll they'll you know reach the zenith and 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 create eras but the tour goes on right it might they might develop it might take on different aspects but it it's it's not going to it's not going to go away le, le tour le tour so so for for obvious reasons you, you it's not hard to predict how they'll react to anyone knocking on their door and asking for their money but one thing that that I early on um, caught on to, uh, and because there's been a lot of writing about this, and some I think has been exaggerated, and some hasn't. But let's say there even was a, a demand for a financial model where they would share the, the revenue of the um, of the Tour de France, selling TV rights. It, it it the money, the figures I've seen, it wouldn't even cover ten percent of the current uh, eighteen teams budget so they're asking for something you know you know often if you ask for something well if there's a deficit are you going to cover it then right it's it's a, if they say well we want to we want equity in the in the product where we are the main characters and then they'll say well okay but it might not give a might not give a might not have a bottom line that you're very happy with are you are you then going to cover that because often when you ask for equity will also be asked to uh you can't just walk away if there's a bill being sent your way but i think there's it all it taps into how the conflict between the teams and the tour the french teams less so in the period after festina i think they would just they would do anything they so asked them to and they so they did see the teams as potential enemies because they they uh they they almost ruined the race for them i think the the sentiment was and um so they did, they weren't particularly interested in going into business with some of the team owners and the sports directors who were the loudest voices on the team side at the time.
1: And Brian, one could argue that the only really, really valuable brand in the sport of professional cycling is the Tour de France. Um, not There isn't a, another team, there isn't another rider who is valuable in terms, in the sort of dimensions that... For example, last week we were talking about the prospects of investment by the PIF, a Saudi Investment Fund, um, of, of the kind of magnitude that they're interested in. When I spoke to someone last week about the prospects of the Saudis getting involved, they said, well, the returns are... Are too small, and even even if they were to take over the Tour de France, which is not going to happen, um, because the Tour de France is privately owned, and the the family that owns the Tour de France have been pretty adamant um, that they would not sell the Tour de France. I also wonder whether there would be some kind of state intervention if they tried to. Yeah. Um, I mean, we saw that try to a, sell the Tour de you France know what? with
2: uh, with the antitrust, which is currently uh, being activated by the Justice Department in the United States figuring out whether the live golf the alternative golf league can actually fusion with the PGA you know initially they, they you know they caused a big divide in professional cycling among uh, professional golf among the the players and um and it became almost like an ideological battle that then ended with uh live as uh, you know the, the the Middle Eastern investment league wanting to fusion with the PGA and and now that's obviously You know, it's unresolved and and I doubt that it's going to happen. But um, coming back to what we spoke about initially, imagine if you um, were a bank, a merchant banker or an investment fund doing due diligence, would you rather own 80% of the UCI or 10% of the ASO? You know, I think that if anyone saying that would rather own the UCI, I'm not going to lend them any money, you know, so um so it's yeah it is it is the biggest and potentially the only franchise because it survived everything and it has survived tendencies it survived doping scandals it's it's seen riders and teams come and go and uh, it's it's really the, the there's a reason why they're forcing their hands sometimes when they see that threatened
0: We are very proud to be partners with map the Melbourne based but global cycling clothing company and the manufacturers and makers and designers of course of the fantastic cycling podcast Jersey and range of accessories, which came out last year. Now, as we approach Black Friday, I can only recommend that you keep an eye on the MAP website. That's MAP.cc, because I gather there may well be some pretty appealing offers in the run-up to Black Friday. You may remember at the start of the year that we featured MAPS' Pursuit of Progression campaign, which was MAPS' initiative to get cyclists all over the world to set themselves a goal for the 2023 season and perhaps challenge themselves more than they had ever challenged themselves before. And we threw it open to you, our listeners. We asked you to send in your cycling goals for 2023. And we heard from one of our listeners over in Northern Ireland, Lisa Jane McIlveen, who wrote in to say that her major goal for the year was to be fit enough to join her club, the Ard Cycling Club, on their annual cycling trip to Mallorca in October. She said she'd always wanted to go, the roads and routes look amazing, but to get there I'll have to cycle consistently each week and also try to cycle on a few consecutive days. Now, we heard from Lisa Jane again a few days ago, and she has told us that although it was a last-minute decision, she did indeed make it on the club's cycling holiday to Mallorca a few weeks ago. On only the second day, she says, I climbed the Puig Mayor. I had zero experience of climbing mountains, so it was a baptism of fire, but I felt such a sense of achievement. I developed my attitude and approach to climbing the mountains and just got stronger as the week went on. It was an experience I'll never forget and I have to admit that the fact that you featured me on the cycling podcast gave me extra motivation to go on the trip and to ride like I'd never ridden before. So thank you so much again. It meant a lot. Well, thank you very much, Lisa Jane, for writing in and letting us know that you made it to Mallorca. Really quite envious, actually, as the winter starts to close in here in the UK. A week cycling in the sunshine in Mallorca sounds absolutely ideal at this time of year. I'm really glad that the cycling podcast and map played a small role in motivating you to be able to go and experience that week in Mallorca brilliant really great to hear that and well it will soon be time to set our cycling goals for 2024 But in the meantime we are delighted to be partnered and kitted out by map if you want to have a look at their range of clothing go to map.cc brian um in a minute i want
1: you to tell us a story i want you to again take us down to take us by the hand and lead us down memory lane to 2000 and around about 2011 2012 when there was another there was another instance of a, a group trying to break away from well particularly ASO but also the UCI to a certain extent um, but just on the Saudis PIF live golf as well um our colleague Spencer Martin on the, the Move podcast, the We Do podcast that he does with Johan Bruniel, made a, a really interesting point. He um, posited a very interesting theory whereby the, the Live Move in professional cycling would be the Saudi Investment Fund, if they can't take over the Tour de France, which we don't think they can, making a play for RCS. Yes. And then... Um, moving the date of the Giro d'Italia and when I say RCS I mean RCS Sport who owns the Giro d'Italia taking over all of their races moving the Giro d'Italia to a position where it competes with the Tour de France much more advantageous slot in the calendar I'm starting to like and this <laughs> and and in the same way that Live has offered, it has given golfers ludicrous sums, um, so that any moral compunction that they might have has completely gone out of the window. I think two hundred million dollars was the figure that was mentioned in conjunction with Phil Mickelson. Um, and, that's, just, and, that, and that's to our listeners
2: who don't follow golf, that is the uh, that is the check to one golf player. Okay, two hundred million dollars yes, to just one to show player. Up. Yep
1: just to show up no it's not mm, contingent on results and Phil Mickelson is a player who is well past his best um, what if Brian PIF they buy RCS Sport they buy so they buy the Giro d'Italia as well as other races um, who are willing to sell them, and they move the Giro d'Italia to July and they offer Tade Pogaccio 20 million euros to ride the Giro d'Italia they offer Matthew van der Poel 20 million and so on and so on and so on is that a threat well first of all
2: they will still have to offer the teams uh who are not bringing their their age their, their a game to the front to the france they'll still have to offer them you know guarantee them money that they could actually you know that they could fund all the operations and give a financial horizon but i, I suppose as, a, as for the sake of argument that's also part of it we're talking potentially about an endless budget but I think that's a very interesting point, and it's a lot more realistic scenario. It's it, it's a hundred times more realistic than them making a bid uh, to try and buy the Tour de France. Uh, and also RCS is in a completely different position business-wise and financially than the ASO is. You know, it's it's you, that in itself all, would, all, would make it pretty incentivized for them to to at also least
0: explore has a such bit, a bit, of it,
1: deal. Also has a I would I would suggest. A bit of a different moral orientation which is not to say that you know they, they subscribe to the same ideas as the saudi arabian you know um kingdom but we've seen with rcs you, were they willing to take money to take the jury to israel yes um we've seen this on numerous occasions with rcs haven't we
2: yeah but don't forget that also uh, aso has Races and activities. True, true. Uh, in the Middle East, you know, they they kind of like divide the the February calendar amongst them in in terms of organizing races. So, uh, I, I I think even if we look aside the, the the different moral outlook, which I think can may or may not be relevant here, uh, if you struggle as a business, you know, I I coming back to the live golf, I saw the the Netflix episode about. The, the, the golf players making those key decisions. And Ian Poulter uh, made the case that, well, it's either this or I'm not going to be a relevant figure in my sport anymore. And I'm not, not going to be able to make the amount uh, of money that I than I can here. So he was trying to make a personal case for, I mean, I'm, he's not on the brink of starvation in, in any in any shape or form. And and neither is the RCS. But RCS doesn't have uh, the same, it's not a, as healthy a business and it's not a, a strong a position for negotiating sda is always and then Who, who's been, the oh, oh, who's
1: the over who's the over the hill but decorated possibly charismatic cyclist that live who's the who's their Phil Mickelson? i've got an, i've got a name in my head and a face in my head but i'm not gonna say it. i'm gonna am, let I, am you, I supposed to say <laughs> i'm gonna let men. you alienate
2: people <laughs> yeah well you confirmed that i just made a suggestion
1: <laughs> yeah anyway um but so, yeah, i mean i suppose a-
2: you can look at the at israel pro cycling as almost you know the 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 team that spent most amount of money on on people's former uh, rest, uh more than their future and that's that's what live has done in golf really they, they wanted these really big named names who have uh, also you know reflect a certain personality across the sport and you know as long as they play against each other look like it's it's a it's a fantastic competition but i i, I mean if 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 chris room or someone who uh you know arguably is beyond their best years race someone that you know you'll also have like a senior you could do a senior uh tour de france or former tour de france winners that hasn't won it or being even close for for a handful of years but i i think when when um when that investment fund goes into cycling, they, they they aim to they want the best, right? And they'll they'll potentially throw any kind of money at it. They're not interested in in anything less. And they I think they have the financial firepower to, you know, to get what they want if if it is just a question of money. And they, they I think they can also wait if they have to. Because this is this is their bid for a relevant future. Which is also, you know, we haven't talked about it yet. As part of it that's sports washing, but as part of it is also trying to to create something that wasn't there already we see that with you know Alula and we see that with the races there and we see that you know part sports washing also with with the World Cup in football so they're, they're trying to create something for m- many of those reasons for why they're doing it are obviously do dubious, but I, I, they'll, if they invest that type of money in cycling and I will put my name to that they're never going to make that money back again <laughs> like never. so you have to look for the ulterior motives for why they want to do it?
1: Mm-hmm. I was discussing this with someone a few days ago who um, again was had knowledge of the situation of this sort of one cycling project and he said about the PIF and their investment in sports their engagement in sports one thing they definitely don't want to do is look stupid they may look to the outside as though so they're undiscerning by virtue of the, the amounts that they're willing to invest but they certainly it goes against all of the reasons why they Want to get involved in sport? They certainly don't want to be embarrassed and to look like they've made foolish well, if, decisions. Well,
2: if that's the case, then I would like to um, I would like to sit in on the debriefing of how that whole
1: live golf thing has turned out for them. Well, that that's been a huge success. I mean, they have they've sort of taken over the kingdom. I mean, they have yeah, if, They, they if, forced if they're, they're able forced... to merge
2: if they're able to merge with the PGA, and for those of our listeners. Who don't follow golf? It would probably be the same as if, as, as the, um, if this investment fund merged with the UCI, of sorts, right? I mean, that's that's probably the, the best example. If the UCI was a strong franchise and and a financially stable, very stable entity, that's probably the best way to, to compare it, um, because they 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 will be able to change the calendar, and the only way to change the calendar is to be in cahoots with the UCI.
1: Yeah, they will certainly, however, this shakes out in live and in golf, they will certainly end up with a mark with an imprint on professional golf at the highest level. And And, and don't forget that, which
2: is very relevant to this discussion now in cycling, they are already a big part they are they are already probably the they are already that uh, the biggest investor in cycling when you look at team sponsorships, when you look at the companies they bought, when you look at the teams that they finance, I think we can all agree that um, UAE has probably the biggest budget in the sport and, and that money comes from, from someone who is potentially you know, part of that investment or their neighbor. You know? so it's, it's, and you have Brian, you have Alula, you have some of these companies who probably own some of the bike manufacturers as well. So they are slowly closing in on it and they, they probably already have quite deep knowledge of how cycling
1: works. Bizarrely, Brian, I already told you this, but yesterday I was walking in Merano in the north of Italy, close to where I'm staying, and I bumped into the CEO of the UAE team, uh, Andrea Agostini, completely random, in a park just outside Merano. Nothing happens Cez- by
2: chance in pro cycling at this time. No, of he's end, from,
1: it. yeah, he's from Cesenatico. He's, of course, uh, he was a childhood friend of Marco Pantani, and um, he was, yeah, enjoying a bit of a break in Merano as well. Um, they, of course, if we're to believe reports, and I should have asked Andrea about this, but we um, talked about other niceties, um, they are not supposedly involved in the one cycling harmony project um as it currently stands brian i said you would tell us a bit of a story about another occasion when there were plans afoot for a breakaway league in professional cycling 2011 12 times something called world series cycling some of the entities some of the individuals involved that are said to be involved now um with one cycling harmony group um what was one what was sorry what was world series cycling what was your involvement at that time i mean initially
2: it was uh, i was i was quite involved in the sense that i was a general manager for a team that was about to sign the the contract and be part of the the initial track yeah the, the to be part of the initial group and there was, um, the impetus uh, and the people behind it, I think they came from quite different areas. Uh, there was uh, someone who had previously been quite high up in the UEFA. Uh, there was um, a London-based lawyer who had done all the groundwork to figure out how this could be constructed as an entity, as a business. And then there were, um, I wouldn't say, you know, as you say in French, the cyclisme, le uh, vitesse, vitesse. there was there was teams that were more hesitant and there were team owners team managers who were not very hesitant and who wanted you know head first, uh, into this and it, there were different motives for it and, and all of them weren't financial in my opinion there was also a lot of frustration uh, with the aso or the uci or both there was a lot of spite against certain ways of of cycling repeating its uh, flawed business model and then it was also at the time when cycling uh, saw very wealthy individuals underwriting or call it sponsoring or whatever you want uh, of teams, you know, uh, people like Jerry Ryan, um, Doug Ellis from, from Garmin Slipstream, uh, Flavio Becker, whom I work for, uh, so, so these were these were people who probably were quite surprised to see how poorly cycling was doing as a as a future investment because the financial stability of having to look for sponsors almost on a yearly basis was not something. I mean, they the only one that actually that stayed on and stayed on for the for the passion and not necessarily for the business, in my opinion, is Jerry Ryan. You know, he's he's underwritten that team. For, for, a, for more than a decade now. And, and if, if he looked at it as a business model and, and if someone was to give to him uh, sound advice from a financial point of view, I think he would have dropped it years ago. But the, I think the overall idea was to not necessarily to, to get rid of, or maybe for some it was, to get rid of the, the, the stronghold that the ASO and the UCI had, because the idea was to create races that didn't exist already. Right, so it was having a tour. grand prix. They, yeah, grand, they were going to call them grand prix, like, and some of it has has uh, in a yeah you know, with, with not a fraction of any kind of success uh, in the um, in the you know the hammer series, and I see elements of that way of thinking in what was the original prospect from the company gifted. It was called, I think, the the company that structured how the the competition was supposed to look like. So it was actually a, a three day event in in the big cities of the world. That would then be populated by the strongest riders in the world, and would be a very action-packed format with a mountain stage, maybe a sprinter. Almost like I imagine if Critérium International was to be held in in Rio, Barcelona, New York, and London, and there would be a, a massive um, involvement with audience. There would potentially be ticketing and and television rights to be to be bought and sold.
1: And well there's some quite amusing entertaining accounts of some of the meetings in the book Le Fric, uh, family power and money the business of the tour de france by alex duff uh, meetings in for quite fractious meetings in some cases in london with bankers and some of the individuals that you described um you remember remember any of that brian
2: yeah, and it. it I, I, I went to a few of them, and, and uh, I wouldn't say I hosted some of them, but there, there was a lot of activity on the same floor I was sitting on in um, in an office building in Luxembourg. Uh, but it also reminded me, so I was, for two years, I was on the board of the AIGCP, which is the overall, and still is, I believe, of sorts, and it also plays a role in, in the conflict now, I suppose, uh, but it's the overall interest organization. It's kind of the lobby for all the teams put together, not just the... For all the pro- professional teams, not just the, the the world tour teams. And one thing that always struck me in in those meetings, um, both in the AIGCP but also in, in the context of this new league. Uh, I think that was the nickname of it. Or the breakaway league, maybe it was the nickname of it initially, was that and I think it's actually the crux of the of some of the problems is that The the team owners and the team managers, uh, some are more sports directors than managers and or vice versa. They couldn't get past the competitive element they had with other teams, a a level of competition that, that that has no relevance when you're not in a bike race, right? Unless you're competing for the same sponsor. I mean, who? Uh, if you take, let's say, like the 10 biggest teams in the world of cycling and ask them, do you want the sport to be more sustainable? Do you want the sport uh, to be trustworthy? Do you want investments to make sense for us in the future? If any one of them said no, they would be out of their mind. But if you put them in the same room together, for some reason, mm. they they have all this almost like this is this. Yeah, it's almost in their DNA that they have a, a level of competitiveness or mistrust amongst them that that probably was one of the reasons why it never worked out
1: yeah i i think as well you have to remember that, that was probably the most fractious time in professional cycling history and um, we were still okay we were beyond the years we were beyond the, the sort darkest times where for example 2007 2008 tours to france when it looked so the whole thing might grind to a halt but of course in 2013 we were going to have the so in january 2013 wasn't yeah, it and we were going to have the armstrong the armstrong confession just before that we had a sort of slow rumble of of stories leading up to that we knew it was coming and you know i suppose with regard to sponsorship and going right back to where we started this conversation about escalating costs um, if you told someone, and I remember conversations I had with the likes of Bob Stapleton, who was the HTC manager back then, and he was a, a victim of exactly this sort of churn that we have referred to. Um, that was a team that should, by any measure, have been very coveted by sponsors. It was the best team in the world. What they'd created was was quite remarkable. And yet they found themselves without a sponsor and eventually had to close. But he would always talk about the spectre of doping and how any conversations with respective sponsors basically ran aground because that was always looming. And if you you told Bob Stableton that in 10 years time, 11, 12 years time, that spectre really, for us who were involved in the sport, we talked earlier about Mikael Hesman's um, positive doping test being a sort of. Bolt from the blue um, an unusual story Um, Bob Stapleson wouldn't have believed that and if you told him no that is the case he would have probably have said to you well this sport is in the perfect position then to exploit capitalise squeeze out all of its potential alongside that we've got the most exciting and in a lot of cases charismatic generation of riders that we've probably ever had or certainly that I can remember and yet we still have these problems The problems being financial ones, yeah. Financial problems.
2: Yeah, yeah, it depends because you can also overemphasize. We don't, I I certainly don't know all the ins and outs of Richard Pluger's qualms uh, regarding his budget or and and whether that led him to pursue the option of of fusioning his team with Patrick Lefebvre's. I think it, it takes, I mean, I can see the parallel because HTC was the most winning team ever, and it was quite telling that they that they didn't they weren't able to uh, catch any significant sponsors even though they tried. but I think there's also and i I, I certainly have a, a lot of respect for Bob Stapleton, but he he was given uh, I believe a, a budget horizon without having to spend a penny himself uh from the remains of the T-Mobile. Uh, ruined, right? So he was given the the budget, and and they had no claim to wanting the name on the jersey or part of the of the of, the, of the, the title sponsorship. He never wanted to invest any money in it himself. Not a single. I don't think he's ever invested any money in in that team. And I think it's hard to go out as someone who was like, extremely wealthy as he was to sell a sponsorship when when they say, well, are you are you at least going to bankroll it for another four months until we find one, right? Because he had riders that he could have and keep under contract. So I think that that deserves to be said in that context and it's something that people never mention when they mention him. And I also think sometimes in that era, uh, especially from the American side, some there was a tendency to always mention doping whenever to try and seem like you were... Uh, trustworthy or distancing yourself from the Lance Armstrong side of things. And that made a lot of sense from a business point of view. But I also think that every time you, you mention anti-doping or the need for anti-doping, you, you also contextualize cycling in a way that, that almost you, you, um, you, you watermark into the sport that that problem will always be there. And I think the only reason, and I'm not saying that that that's the sport inherently changed its morals, but, but it's a new generation now. Right, we have we have riders winning. You know, Vingegaard was born the same year that Bianchi won his first and only Tour de France. So it is a new generation. It's 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 a different mindset, and and they obviously know what happened uh, on beforehand. But they came into the sport with a completely different. Yeah. um, But yeah.
1: But but a generation that's also the fruit of those very intense and painful efforts over several years, by the likes of Bob Stapleton, Jonathan Volders, and so on and so forth. and the biological passport and the biological
2: passport, right? so of course i mean i'm not they were I, I, in a lot of ways they would i'm not saying they weren't pioneers but i also think that there was it there was certainly a period of time where i think it was overemphasized you know more the the, the problems that wasn't cycling than the actual willingness to to do something about it other than just talking uh that that was my feeling when i was you know, in in the middle of it uh, because there there's there was still problems but i think we you know the. Looking back, we probably also overemphasized those problems for, for a little bit too long. And it was hard to sit in those meetings with potential sponsors. And, and by God, I've, I've sat in a few and, and it almost felt like you had to have a slide in your PowerPoint that, that talked about it. Right. And you, you, you're potentially talking to people who, doesn't, who don't even know cycling, you know, not telling them that you shouldn't touch upon it because it's important. But I think also we didn't do ourselves a lot of favors in some of those meetings.
0: The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science.
1: Well, Brian, I think that is probably enough business chat this week. Cycling business chat. I, don't, I never really know whether it's a turn off to people. Cycling business chat, cycling politics chat. Um, Brian, I've been reading a book over the last couple of days, Our Final Invention by James Barrett, about AI and how it's going to kill us all. And part of me thinks none of it's going to matter. And, um, yeah, I think um, 2024 Tour de France might be the last one. So you're in uh, my more conclusion a conclusion from reading that.
2: You retreated to uh, the high mountains with the feeling of the apocalypse being forthcoming.
1: Yes, um, yes. I will stand on uh, a very high peak here in the Italian Sud and I will be the last one standing, Brian. That's my hope, at least. I'm glad and I got I'll to still see be you before it all happened. We will still be... Yeah, there'll still be episodes of the Cycling Podcast to listen to. Alas, there'll be no listeners. There'll be no audience for us, Brian. Um, so, Brian, um, yes, um, 2024 Tour de France. Of course, there was. we had the presentation a few weeks ago. Um, lots been going on in professional cycling, Brian, in your absence while you've been Um, harvesting grapes in California making wine writing cookbooks Um, we've had the aborted Jumbo Visma Sudar Quickstep merger we've had Prebrons Roglic changing teams Jonas Vingogor being elected velo door winner in 2023 the best rider of 2023 we will elect our best rider of 2023 among other things best team and so on and so forth over the next few weeks but brian what's caught your eye in amongst all of that and maybe other stories that have hit the news over the last few weeks
2: it's funny because I was flying into Florence the other day, coming back from Copenhagen. Initially, I actually couldn't get back because of the floodings, and, and luckily that's somewhat under control right now. But flying into Florence, I was thinking about the tour de France starting there in yeah in, in less than a little bit more than half a year, and it's um it's it's quite interesting how people look at the twenty twenty four tour de France route, and and it, and opinions certainly vary. Uh, but I, I think there's a there's a potential now that that Roglic, Roglic has changed teams with Evanepol coming in hot potentially for his first aim at the Tour de France and Jonas Wingenar. I mean I know he won that prize and if the prize was given for the strongest rider of 2023, easy outright winner. There's no doubt about it. The the, the display of of performance is level in in basically all the races that he rode. Uh, it, it merits that title um but i think the the but, but there's a big old no but no coming. the but is um the tour de france only grows bigger because of this right and we that's what we also talked about early on in the episode now it's, it is it has the potential i know i'm I'm very much half full kind of guy glass more than you but the next year the tour de france really has the when it comes Gnostic. to cycling when it comes to cycling it it uh, has the potential to be the greatest race ever if you look at the parkour, at least in my opinion, if you look at the uh, the lineup of riders, and it, it worries me a little bit for the Giro, it potentially worries me for the Welter. And when a rider like Fenderpool winning everything that he did, it was because he didn't win the tour, didn't win three stages, that he wasn't the best rider in the world, or that Pogacar didn't, you know, when you look at his, his um, Palmares of this year. So it, it it just proves the point that the tour is the measuring stick above and beyond um, for for cycling. And if we uh, if we and we have to uh, agree with that, that premise to to uh, argue any conclusion, I, I hope that the tour can live up to it next year.
1: Hmm, I don't agree with you about the Vuelta. I don't think the Vuelta is in in trouble. As I always say, the Vuelta is like that is that grotty nightclub that you always swear at the beginning of an evening out that you're not going to this week. You will definitely not visit La Vuelta. It would be a, a good name for a nightclub. We actually, actually. have one of those nightclubs near my university here
2: in Pietrasanta, and it's called the. Oh, yeah, really? it's called the Cobra Club
1: they usually have names like that and um, my my sort of den of <laughs> sort of disrepute at university was called Ombres, um just off leicester square and it was similar yeah you would swear that you weren't gonna go there and you would end up there at two o'clock in the morning well, propping up a bar, i'm still drinking waiting pain. for
2: my waltzer invite you know i'm always doing it from the distance yeah
1: <laughs> uh, yeah there you'd be paying yeah, £7.50 for rod- vodka Red Bulls, which probably cost about £15 now. Um, so the Vuelta will always be fine, okay. Brian. Will I'm, be I'm happy to at, hear that. Um, queuing at La, La Vuelta, um, trying to get past the, well, very permissive, very por- porous door policy, entry policy for La Vuelta. Um, yes, interesting, Brian, interesting. Um, Vingegaard, um, I was, well, I said it on the podcast at the time, I sort of agreed with the choice of Um, him being velodor I thought uh, well in much the same way that you've just said the Tour de France is going to be the event of 2024 I thought it was the event of 2023 it was a brilliant race and um, he was by far the best rider and his season was perfect apart from two days at Paris-Nice so I think he deserved it but in the the area
2: we're in Daniel with so many I mean we talked about that throughout the year we're in an era of cycling now where we've never seen such a a wide level of incredible athletes who can do almost anything in any terrain and then you know it it's extremely hard to win in that company you know even if if everything that tade Pogacar did he was also had a, a, a extraordinary season but he didn't win the tour he only became second right and then fenderpool winning everything that's almost everything that's that you, you could create an entire career out of the year he had, so it's a very, very it's hard to win the big races because of that elite group which is so diverse now. So that that it makes sense that it's very hard to to find to pick a winner because they they are, they're outright fantastic each each of those seasons when you look at them individually.
1: Indeed, Brian, indeed. Brian, on that note, I think we will conclude tonight's podcast. Um, I will, I have plans tonight to go and eat some Tyre-lees, um mountain fare canederli, um dumplings, which is what are often consumed in these parts. Not really your sort of, However, I'm, sort I'm, of I'm, food, I'm, is it?
2: I'm aiming, uh, I'm looking at a very similar fair-ish, uh i'm having a thing left over or supuko, which is like a mountainish food you know with a with a nice glass of gatinara which is Altalange um from conterno nervi so yeah I'm, I'm i'm meeting you halfway up that
1: hill so we're, we're both doing just fine talking of wine brian um i've got a i've got a, a race of my own coming up on the weekend um, something called the valtellina wine trail which is the kind of thing that you would probably um, make a good fist off. I could see you as one of the leading capacitors in that race, but it's a, it's a trail. It's a mountain uh, trail no, I would, race. Like, really, yeah, it, it will um, be, it'll be a steep
2: one because the 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 vineyards of Valtellina are horribly steep. Well, yeah, because and that valley That's that valley is so narrow and dark. You know, yeah, you don't you'd only see me running away from the Valtellina. It's it's a it's a clone <laughs> of Nebbiolo that I'm not very fond of
1: well brian i will endeavor i will try my best to enjoy it on saturday and uh, maybe report back next week there will be a podcast next week There's a podcast every week brian um we're not sure who is going to be on it next week but uh, there'll be something for you listeners and on that note i will say good night brian and thank you very much on international cappuccino day thank you daniel don't go ordering one tonight please thank you then The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed, and Lionel Burney.
0: With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need.